generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction. <laughs> Welcome to Color Correction. All right. Live. Welcome to Color Correction, a GCC podcast about race and faith from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and an Egyptian guy, too. Yes! That uh, wrote a book. Yeah, that wrote a book, which is why we're here live at the space at Frankfurt Ave. Uh, Brian, we're recording, right? All right. This is... um. Uh, kind of nerve-wracking. Beth was saying to me earlier that, uh, like, you showed up here and then you it hit you that this was an actual live episode and we weren't actually... On the, our computers on at our home. Computers like, when 20 home. or 30 people got here, I was like, oh, shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, this is live. You know, it's funny because, like, we were talking a year ago about doing a book launch party for Johnny and here we are doing, doing, a, doing a book launch party. How's that feel, Johnny? Feels pretty good. Yeah. All right. Woo! Um, and also, we're coming up on. We're coming. Should I keep going, Bryant? All right. Uh, we're coming up on like the three years of doing this podcast, yes, which is kind of wild. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, A podcast that just started with us talking shit and eating lunch together yeah pretty much three years later here we are right uh so what the buzzing is okay it's his mic buzzing oh no great um should we just keep on going i guess so yeah yeah i think so the show must go on right uh i can't just edit this out (laughs) So that's nerve-wracking. Um, you want to sit at my mic for a little bit? No, let's just keep going. Okay. We'll, th- this will, this is just part of the live experience. Um. Oh yeah! All right, and here we go. Nice. Round of applause for our spare white guy, Brian Burkhart. All right. So, um, why don't we just get into it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're here to talk about the book uh, with uh, Johnny. Oh, Johnny we didn't do our formal introductions yeah, that we usually do. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have to talk in the microphone and not to you. Wait, which formal introductions? I'm Andrew. I'm oh, Asian. right. I'm Andrew. I'm Asian. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Bethany. I'm a black woman, and I use she, her pronouns. Johnny Rashid, Egyptian, brown, he, him. That's why that felt. Hey, weird. look, Bethany and Jim just came in. How do you like that? Hello. Um, so uh, here we are t- uh, to celebrate Johnny's, or to acknowledge, to sell at the book launch party of, of your book, Johnny. Jesus takes a side, embracing the political demands of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You've been doing a lot of these, haven't you? A lot of podcasts. You would, yeah, just talking about your book a lot. General, a lot of interviews yeah, like a dozen so far. Yeah. Uh, do, are, this is, is going to be the best one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> been insufferable so far. I don't far. have to back that up with proof I said it. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about this, Johnny? Are you, like, tired of talking about your own book? I think... 
I think I was tired of talking about my book like in December of 2021. Mm-hmm. So that was a long time ago when I was done writing it. But, you know, I can keep it going. Okay. We'll try to make this it's more It's really good. You should buy a copy. <laughs> right. And copies are available there at the back. Um, so I wanted to start our conversation by basically where the book starts, which is talking about kind of the embodied theology and how you realized or how you came to acknowledge the politics of your your body. And what you do is start the book by talking about a particular moment where that became kind of alive for you, right? Yeah, totally. It was was right in the context of our church, January 2017, right after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And and the first thing he did, one of the first things he did was it was an executive order to have this, what became known as the Muslim ban, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a series of Arab countries, predominantly Muslim countries, and they they were banned entry. Their people were banned entry into the United States. Um, Although Egypt and Saudi Arabia weren't on that list. Uh, We can go into why those two were not, but enemies of the U.S., which aren't Egypt because of its relationship with Israel and Saudi Arabia because also its opposition to Iran. The other countries were banned, and when we were having a love feast, it was at 1125 South Broad, a building that we used to have a lease at, and I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to do communion, offer the words of institution, which is one of the things we do at the love feast, as many of you know. And I get a notice that there's families stuck at, in O'Hare. They can't get through the gate because the ban happened that day and then it was, and then in that moment it, it was occurring, right? And he said he was going to do this. Trump said he was. So there's something that isn't surprising but also shocking in the moment, right? Like believe people when they tell you who they are because that's exactly what happened. And I was distraught because I felt it in me, you know, and maybe even for the first time this distinctly that people, and I grew up during 9-11 and, and during the war on terror, so I felt um, particular like attacks on right. who I was, but this felt distinct. Like people that looked like me and my children weren't allowed in the country only because of how they looked. And it felt like I couldn't, I can't give you the words of institution without talking about this, mm-hmm. without actually um, allowing the cross to have what, what, what salvation really means to actually save us from the things that oppress us. I had to make the connection. You know, mm-hmm. and in tears I offered the words of institution because I needed Jesus to save me in that moment because it, it was palpable, you know. I, mm-hmm. not, not, save me from my, uh, not save me from my sins, save me from death, save me from the oppression that was so uh, distinctly manifest before me. Um, and so I felt self-conscious about doing something political in that moment, but I couldn't help but do it. Mm-hmm. And so it became something more than political because it was something personal. It was mm-hmm. something about me, too. You the words of institution became something more than political? Yeah, the whole, the, the communion did and the words of institution. What I think is interesting about that moment that you're describing is that there's this moment where you acknowledge that in order for God to continue relating to you or in order for your faith to continue being real, God has to be with you in the particular pain that you're feeling because mm-hmm. of who you are in your body. Absolutely. You know? And it's interesting to me that this is because you're relating to other people that look like you, other brown people, who are also dealing with 
uh, the Muslim ban, an immigration ban, right? So you, you can relate to them in yourself, in your skin. Um, I think that's interesting because oftentimes what whiteness demands of us is that uh, when we feel this, um, when we feel a distance from God because God isn't joining us in our skin or because our, the, our theology tells us that God doesn't join us in our skin, whiteness demands that we give up our skin mm -hmm. in order to join God. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of curious about what, not just that moment, but what led you, and also like Bethany, you too, and like I'm thinking about this for myself, like how did we get to the place where, um, where we recognize our skin and also where we acknowledge that God is only real if he shares our experience. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, the process of getting comfortable with the concept of Jesus taking a side with us because especially we all grew up evangelical, right? Mm -hmm. You did too? Mm -hmm. The idea is that, I think Audre Lorde refers to it as this like fake idea of normalcy, right? That like everybody's trying to be this fake norm of white, Christian, male, and straight, right? And to finally choose that that is not the norm and that I can elect my own norm, that's a real process for people of color. And then it's an even further process for people of color who are Christians, like Andrew has said, mm -hmm. where we're told we have to relinquish our colorfulness to really be connected to God. So definitely, what was your process of choosing this and reconciling it with your faith? What were the beginning steps of it? If the gospel isn't good news for people that are oppressed, if it's not good news for me in this moment, then it isn't, it's, it's not for me. Mm. So Jesus isn't for me. That's how I had to see it. There isn't room at the communion table for all of us if we have people that think it's okay to keep brown Arabs out of the country. And then not just people who think it's wrong to do that, but actual brown Arabs. So it's not a difference. You have an idea and then you have a person. And those two can't, they cannot be together. Um, it doesn't work, you know. It's not, to it's not mutual tolerance of different ideas, which we like, mm -hmm. you know. People brag about their churches. We have different people with different ideas, and they get along. They come to the communion table, and they get along. We, we have Democrats and Republicans at Thanksgiving, and it's happy time, you know. Like that's, and that's like a positive thing. But when, when it affects who you are, then it isn't good news for you. There isn't space for you there if it poses an existential threat to, who you, to, to your very existence. And so... Right. For Jesus to be an actual savior for me, then Jesus has to meet me in my own oppression. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Here, I guess zeroing in on this. <laughs> what? Go ahead, huh? Uh, zeroing if in you don't answer Andrew's question, he's going to reframe it and make you answer I am reframing it. That's what I'm answer. about to do. I thought you did too, but Andrew ain't like it, so go ahead. I like your answer. I just wanted to, I'm just trying to get in there, you know? <laughs> I mean, there are other people that have come to that realization, Johnny, and what they do is say, Jesus is not for me, mm -hmm. so Jesus is not for me. Right. That's it. You know, I'm going to find something that is for me. anyone like me. Right. Either. I'm yeah. going to find something that was made for me. You know, I'm going to find some other religious practice or no religious practice at all or whatever. It, so why is, I'm, what I'm curious about is like, why are we here? Why are we next to a cross? 
Like, why is it oh. that, like, why is it, it, it in confronting this, this, uh, this, this failure of theology, where the theology that we've been given tells us that Jesus is not for us, why is it that we have instead decided to stay here and insist, oh, actually, Jesus is for us. Mm-hmm. Actually, Jesus is for us more than he is for other, for, for, uh, people for white people. People who don't experience right. oppression. The, because the conscientiousness that I have about being an oppressed Arab and what to do about it comes from the claim that Christ has made on me. So that's, that's something that I personally experienced mm-hmm. and that I hold. So if this claim is real and it's on me, then I can't reject Christ because Christians are hypocritical about it. And I refuse then mm. because of the claim Jesus has made on me and how I've become more fully myself and a liberated person via Jesus and via the gospel. I can't have a white oppressor uh, named Donald Trump colonize the gospel and take it from me. No, I'm not going to cede the territory. Mm. No, I'm not going to mm. let it go. Mm-hmm. You're going to let it go. We're, that's the fight we're going to have. There's a side for you to get on. I'm on it because of the experience that Jesus has in my life. And I'm not going to relinquish that to you mm-hmm. just because you hold political office and just because um, 82 of white, 82 percent of white evangelicals and 85, by the way, in 2020, went up three percentage points. Um, voted for you. Like, that's not enough for you to colonize the gospel that I think has liberated me. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I can, now I, and in that moment, I felt like I could talk about it mm-hmm. and actually say, no, this is the actual experience that I've lived. And now you have to reckon with that. Yeah. How did I do it? Did I answer your question yet? Were you going to, uh, what were you going to say something else? I was going to ask what has compelled you to stick to that conclusion, right? Because I think particularly in our society where we see so many things happening where it feels like Jesus and God are absent from these things, it feels much easier to choose that like there's no Jesus, Jesus didn't take a side. It feels what you're describing feels like you made a very clear and conscious decision. I wonder if you're aware of that decision or if it just feels like some, it didn't even feel like an option to you. Because of the claim crisis made on me, because <laughs> of how personal it's yeah. been, I have to keep holding on to Jesus or else I would feel inauthentic. What I'm, what, but I'm not saying What's that- What's the claim though? That's actually, that's why I laugh because the idea of anybody having a claim on me makes me want to reject it. But for you, that has been a, it sounds like you're describing well, it as reason, a saving the, grace. The reason I have liberation theology or anti-oppression theology or anti-racist theology is because of Jesus and because of the Bible. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's where it came from. And so I hold on to it. And then that's how I also realize um, how I express and live in the world. That's, that's the path that I've taken. And so Jesus has a specific meaning to me. And I want to share that with people. And if, if you jive with Jesus too, that's cool. Mm-hmm. If you share the convictions I do, but you don't name Christ as the author of them, that's okay as well. Mm-hmm. So there's an alliance that we can have as a result of that. The purpose isn't to say that fundamentally these ideas come from the container of Christianity that holds our faith. Mm-hmm. It's just the container that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And it's too hard for me to undo that. Mm-hmm. So if you come to the conclusion via a different faith, that's okay. You know, um, What I'm writing about and what I'm saying is that for people who claim that Jesus is Lord, then Jesus takes a side. There's mm-hmm. an idea that follows that that has impacted us a lot. But I'm not making a principled point about how all liberation flows from this source that I founded. 
That could be true, mm-hmm. but I can only speak for myself. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, and I think that totally. Beth and I are both, uh, well, at least I am, speak- I am coming from the same place. Uh, Scott sees is nodding his head. He has been nodding his head at me for a long time, so I really See, so you wanted it. to acknowledge that? Yeah, that, I do. When, the, he, when this, he's nodding, I'm like, oh, I'm saying something smart. Mm. <laughs> Scott was my best friend in uh, high school. Oh, fun. Hello, Scott. And Brandon and Brian are two other best friends that are going to play the MXBX show, which is why we're all here anyhow. Nice. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to pick out random people in the crowd... Go uh, ahead. Who do you want to pick out? My cousin Justin is over there. What's up, Justin? Justin my cousin Justin. Justin. 10 years ago. And he, Justin yeah. has been a guest on the podcast. Oh, yeah, he has been a guest Go on the podcast. Go back and listen to that episode. But it, one, there was this one time where Justin called me out of the blue in the way that he often does and said to me, <laughs> how do you deal with the fact that Jesus was a white guy? And I was like, Jesus, first of all, that's not historically true, you know? But that's not what he meant. What Justin was saying was that Jesus feels like a white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he, that's, that, that's the way that Jesus is portrayed. That's the image of Jesus that's been given to us frequently. Uh, Jesus reads as white mm-hmm. in order, you know, in, our, in the culture that we live in. Um, it is interesting to me that, I mean, I'm with you, Johnny, in the sense that the parts of the faith that speak to me most are the liberatory parts. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about Jesus being our liberator, when we talk about being freed from oppression, I don't think we're reading something into our tradition that isn't there. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're taking something there. We're taking, we're taking the, the faith at its word. If you're telling us that Jesus saves, then he has to save us from mm-hmm. this. He has to save us from the thing that things that affect us personally. Uh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I guess um, there are people out there who, t- who look at the idea that Jesus, who, who might agree with us that Jesus saves. Uh, but instead of saying that uh, Jesus takes a side, um, they might say that Jesus, um, that the side that God is on is a side that transcends everybody's side. The, the third way, another side, right? I feel like we should have a sound effect because of our episode about the third uh, about way. the third way? Where it's like the third way. <laughs> we had an episode called uh, Redeeming the Third Way, and then Johnny was like, I don't like that title <laughs> because I don't think the third way is redeemable. So I went back and added a question mark to it because <laughs> I thought his critique was valid. You yeah. like wrote in an email about how like the idea of the third way isn't actually valid and uh, I was like, oh, it's not a bad critique. I'll add a question mark into the title. Um, but what, is, uh, what does it mean to you when we, when we talk about, when people say the third way and when we talk about rejecting the idea of the third way? What do you mean by that? Well, I want to say something that you, like some people say Jesus transcends all sides and is all, and on all of our sides. The right. truth is that Jesus can be on all of our sides. Um, it just matters how we're going to move with Jesus. The question isn't, is Jesus on my side? It's more like, am I, on Je- am I, am I moving with God? Am I mm-hmm. moving with the Spirit? Everyone has an opportunity to come to the table. Mm-hmm. Jesus will meet you where you're at and then usher you along the journey. We're all in different places. It's not exclusive, you know? And so if you feel like Jesus isn't on your side, find out where Jesus is moving, you know? The Gospels are full of testimony and examples of Jesus treating people from different social positions in different ways 
um, and welcoming welcoming them welcoming welcoming them in to the Subversive fold ways. In, in, in in different and unique ways. Jesus mm -hmm. meets us where we're at, and then we have unique journeys to follow. So you know, if you're a um, a disabled black woman or an able-bodied, temporarily able-bodied straight male, you're going to have different different ways to get to Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and the paths are different. Jesus will meet you both and move you along. Um, Walter Wink talks about the third way. I don't, I don't write about this at, at all, really, but he talks about the third way as being a, um, the difference between fight or flight, and there's another way to engage conflict. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King never said third way particularly, but had a nonviolent approach to um, resistance, yeah. anti-racist resistance, that you could categorize as a different way of doing things. Not just violent, violence opposing violence, but a nonviolent way. Now the reason today that kind of vocabulary doesn't work is because the movement um, for black lives follows in the footsteps of Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance. And when we say third way, we pose Black Lives Matter as one of the poles of the third way conversation. It isn't the third way, it's a political idea. It's leftist, it's Marxist, it's socialist, whatever lies they want to say about it. That's the idea here. Even though it's in the same footsteps as King. So if you actually want to do nonviolent resistance, then you should say Black Lives Matter. They're the same thing. Instead, what we get is people um, um, I would say whitewashing Martin Luther King, right? I'm um, sanitizing Martin Luther King so that it appears like there's another way to do it. And actually, and I'm not going to get into this extensively and I won't name anybody, but very recently there's been an example of somebody doing this um, that's that, um, saying that our protest should be nonviolent and I won't elevate another protest that appears to be uh, violent. No, it, assertiveness and making the opposition uncomfortable isn't violent. Mm -hmm. That is the third way. So the third way is not meant to comfort you, but the fact is it's been, so, it's been such a term that's so soiled and so useless, it doesn't make sense to use it. And, and the effort that it takes to redeem the third way is wasted because we should just be redeeming oppressed people instead of a term that makes us politically comfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is nice having a live wow. audience. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I'm very conscious of like the way I'm sitting. <laughs> I don't like this. I feel like 10% of, and now dra Johnny's dragging my chair over. I feel like 10% of my brain is like going toward like, what do I look like right now? <laughs> like As opposed Ferrell to like, how do I lead us through this conversation? 10% is pretty low percentage for that, by the way. I'm like 95% of that. I feel like Ricky Bobby, like I don't know what to do with my hands. I uh -huh. keep moving my hands. I don't know yeah. what to do. Uh, I mean, people are going to, what do you have to, I, I feel like some people are going to look at your, your book, Jesus Takes a Side, uh, and they're going to be like, well, does this, is this book positing that maybe because they look at, maybe because in their conception of things, they see things like that, they see Black Lives Matter, for instance, as existing on one pole of a dipolar thing. And they're going to say, well, what this book is is an argument that Jesus picks a political party, and that political party is the Democratic Party. Is that the point of your book? No, if you get to the third section of the book, and I, I forget what chapters, I, I um, first say, I spend, I spend a significant amount of time criticizing Joe Biden, right? Because you remember the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, that was pretty horrifying, where um, 
the Democrats went on this big investigation to um, discover more information about Brett Kavanaugh's sexual assault allegations, and it was a long process and, you know, um, painful to observe, right? You had a, a victim of sexual assault testify and, you know, be like gaslit right by the senators, right in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Brett Kavanaugh screaming like a wild man, and he sits on the Supreme Court. Just like a surreal moment of our existence. Mm-hmm. But they went really hard to investigate this sexual assault allegation. Tara Reid is a woman who made one against Joe Biden, and the Democrats demonstrated their lack of moral courage and moral leadership by doing nothing about it. And so, um, and then there's a real partisan effort to tell us, no, she's different. She's a different kind of, this is, this is the case, this is the telltale sign of, uh, these are the signs of someone who is, uh, who is lying about their assault allegation. And so they did that. So the Democrats are not moral leaders and can be looked to for moral courage. Um, based on that hypocrisy, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, if you've seen how Congress acts or doesn't act and the ineptitude of the Biden administration facing, Donald Trump yesterday said, I will do another insurrection. Mike Pence could have been a hero, okay? And the headline today is that Joe Biden fell off of his bicycle. I'm just telling you that um, the, the, the ineptitude, I mean, of the, of the Democratic Party is um, discouraging. Mm-hmm. That I voted for them every election for my life isn't an endorsement of them. It's just an expression of desperation. Like, this is the only option I had, given these circumstances. <laughs> right. hmm. um, further, if you look at local politics in Philadelphia, everybody's a Democrat. And so there isn't like, and there is still a side to take, you know. Right. Although we have some cool non-democratic uh, council, members of council, for what it's worth. Um, so no, I don't, I think that is too simplistic. Uh-huh. Um, and also I said in, 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 the, in the book that I reserve the right uh, not to vote at all. Um, I remember when Michael Bloomberg was buying YouTube ads at the end of 2000, at the, at the end of, right, right before the, the primary, 2019, 19, 19 into 20, um, he was buying ads and getting pretty popular. And I was like, I just can't vote for another billionaire oligarch, right? Mm-hmm. If he is getting this popular, I don't know if I want to participate in a democracy where you can just buy yourself votes. Right. And so I reserve the right not to participate and I expect my elected officials or the ones running to compel my vote. And I don't feel any civic duty or obligation to vote for you just because you're the lesser of two evils. And so I don't feel any obligation to vote blue no matter who, even though I always have. Right? Like I don't, I don't, that, that is an incidental situation mm-hmm. and I don't feel particularly convicted about doing that. What I think is interesting, you've been saying, uh, as you've been going, you've been saying recently that uh, the, the thesis of the book Jesus Takes Aside has been more, it's been easier to get people on board in this particular political moment than it would have been for like eight years ago or prior to the election Probably of Donald even Trump. even just four, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think right. I, I, the, sad, the sad truth is that the manifest white supremacy that existed under the Trump administration and has um, reared its ugly head in the entire GOP has made it easier for people to say, okay, there's clearly, there's, there's clear bad guys here. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to oppose them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have like this 
two neoliberal style people in like Mitt Romney and uh, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. where like one has, he has Romney care in Massachusetts, and then Barack Obama's big thing was Obamacare, which is just like a federal size Romney care, and that's the political dis- discourse. It can be understandable why, mm-hmm. using this example, taking a side falls a little flat, even though like it was cool to vote for a black president for me mm-hmm. um, and important. Um, in terms of politics, it seemed fairly similar. Right. And so getting people, this is, this is why it was confusing, because we could say we don't like Democrats, we don't like Republicans, whatever, whatever, and then we could continue acting in a nonpartisan way mm-hmm. because they were both so uh, similar. But it became, it, what, what it did was Donald Trump messed us up because the evil was so manifest. Even though the seeds were planted long before Trump came, right, by um, white grievance politics really expressed mm-hmm. in the United States for a long time. We saw it pretty clearly. And then at this point, like there's a neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville and it's, it's, a, it's a mess. And at that point, it's easier to say, hey, this is real bad. We need to actually take a stand and actually do something because of the existential consequences. Mm-hmm. Because this moment feels more existential because it seems like it's life or death at this point. Yes, and even though it always was, it's just clearer to fairly apolitical people than it mm-hmm. is. Like political participation and political consciousness has grown under the Trump administration just because the evil is so great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, <laughs> were you going to say something, Andrew? Nope, go ahead. I'm wondering for you, as I think of the idea of Jesus taking a side, that actually feels really natural for me as a black woman um, and someone who grew up in the black church, right? The black church was um, an originator of uh, civil unrest and political movement throughout, I guess, the 20, is it the 20th century, 1960s and stuff? That's the 20th century? century. I never understand that. Because then when it, it hit 2000, it was 21st. In my head, that should have been 20. Um, you had but to the add 20, just one. Add one. You add to an extra that. 100. Yeah, I think that's how. That's foolish. But in the 20th century, <laughs> that was a main, that was a staple of black life, right? That the church is almost inseparable um, from political movement, right? So I wonder for you, as you wrote this book, um, how do you anticipate people of color reading this book. Do you want them, do you want, um, them to have language for their experience? W- what are your thoughts on that? I think if you grew up in the, in the black Christian tradition, it will make sense to People you. of color in general, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that you find your place. I hope that you find that Jesus is on your side and that you can be um, fully yourself and you don't have to hide anymore and you can feel your pain fully because you have a savior that's, gonna, that's, that's, that's trying to liberate you from it, that has liberated you from it. So I hope that it helps people of color specifically know that the gospel is good news for them and that not only is there room at the table for them, but the table has been set for them. Mm. That is specifically that for their liberation and for the liberation of the oppressed. You're not a guest at the table. Jesus came to save you and everybody else mm-hmm. if you move with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jesus sides with the oppressed. Um, so I hope they feel that and I hope they feel inspired because the opposite has happened for racial minorities, but especially for sexual minorities. We've been told that the gospel isn't for us, that, we're not, mm-hmm. that we don't belong, that we're not at the table. And so let's, let's change um, the dynamic. Let's actually say Jesus is here for you 
and I hope people feel that. And that takes a lot of courage. I understand why someone wouldn't, would read this book and decide, no, I still can't do it because the trauma and the pain is too mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, it's not, it's not an apology for Christianity. That is to say, it's not a defense of Christianity. It is, um, it can be used as an opportunity for people who feel like they want to follow Jesus to continue to do so with courage and with conviction. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's an interesting point that you're making about it being maybe too hard for some folks that have always had one idea of Jesus in mind. Um, yeah, I wonder, has writing this book made you picture Jesus differently? Does that question make sense? Like, I know I had one image in mind for many years of what Jesus looked like. I had my TBN Jesus with the nice wavy brown hair, right? I wonder if this process of writing this book has made you reimagine a Jesus that's right beside you. Totally. I mean, I, what, what was... And what he looks like. <laughs> and well, what he looks like? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, what's interesting, as, as an Arab-American, um, I think Jesus actually did look like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, I Ooh, think... Like, you see what I was doing, Andrew? Mm -hmm. that's yeah, like an, nice. Like, that was great. I, I think, like, could have been in smooth. terms of historicity, great. like, if you're going to pick an ethnicity, mm -hmm. yeah. we have it. Yeah. Like, oh, I understand true. it's Got important it. for people to paint Jesus in, in the uh -huh. color of their skin. Like, mm -hmm. if you're white, you have a white Jesus. Don't go too heavy on that, but... Um, and if you're Asian or black, you know, but like, if you just took a picture of him, you know, a photograph of the man, he might look more like us, right? And so that's, that's something. Um, so I always saw Jesus like that, but really what influenced, what changed my mind, what, what, how I was, my image of Jesus changed while writing this book is that you just have to open, especially the gospel of Luke, and you just see I thought that there, you got to do, you have to do theological and biblical jumping jacks to say Jesus doesn't take a side. But if you mm -hmm. just do a plain reading, it's right there. It's very hard to get around. You have to do a lot of work to justify Jesus as a slaveholder, Jesus as like manifest destiny, j j killing all the American Indians. You have to do a lot of work to make Jesus that, right? For Jesus to be a Tea Party Jesus, you need a lot of work mm -hmm. to make that happen. But if you just do a plain reading of the gospel, it's very clear that Jesus sides with the oppressed. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very unmistakable. And so now what you need to do is, and we're Anabaptists, or at least I am, so like we would say, well, Constantine is the one who imperialized Christianity, and that's how it began. But if you just read the text, it's very subversive right from the start. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to follow a savior who is executed for sedition against the state and not think of Jesus as a radical political disruptor. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a lot of work to do that. It takes a lot of effort. And a lot of effort has been done to, to undo that, so it's not like it's easy. But if you're just reading the Bible plainly, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. I want to zero in on something that you said earlier and that what Beth said, too, in that... Uh, you're, what you said was that it is easier in this particular moment for politics to feel existential. And mm. what Beth said was that uh, for, the, for people, for black people and for the black church, basically it has always That's right. felt existential. And because of that, the idea that Jesus takes a side, obviously Jesus takes a side. Otherwise, why would we worship Jesus? Uh, is, is, I mean, is, is, and because of that, there is a long tradition in the black church of cultivating both the idea that Jesus takes his side and the discipline of the hope that that brings. Mm -hmm. 
I have trouble holding on to that hope. <laughs> yeah. And you describe that practice as a discipline at the end of your book. That's right. Hope is, hope is a discipline because cynicism costs us nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It costs us nothing to be cynical. Yeah. Um, and it, the, the very idea of Jesus taking a side, like cultivating that belief, it has to be a discipline. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, sometimes I look out at the odds against us and the sheer evil that is out there and I feel like if there's a God out there he's not taking he's not taking a side of he's not taking he's not good he's not taking a side because because I just the sheer amount of hopelessness out there just mm-hmm. the, the the fact that like if uh, if there is a saving God he's not saving anybody um, how do you respond to that Johnny <laughs> Well, I think you have to look at actual liberation movements. You know, mm-hmm. they exist. The evil that we're in, the darkness of the soul, is real. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's distinct, right? Um, just this last month, right? So many mass shootings, and particularly punctuated in Buffalo, where 10 get killed in a white supremacist massacre. In Uvalde, Texas, where 19 kids get killed, um, both by 18-year-olds. Right, like this is this is a miserable existence. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to see that and to hope um, that anything is possible. And then you have a leading Republican say something like, "Jesus wouldn't have died if he had an AR-15." So right. it's just like very wild behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just it doesn't. Jesus it's like wouldn't have died. Yeah, he needed guns. Like, it's, did you read? Did you finish the book? Like. It, <laughs> It's, it's, it's frustrating, right, uh, that this could even be like a possibility. But the, the, the evil around us is heavy, mm-hmm. and right. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Um, holding on to the hope of resurrection takes faith, yeah. and it takes discipline. Um, and then allowing that transcendence to motivate us to enact imminent liberation, um, I have to hold both of them together. I have hope. And then I also have to discipline my anger. I have to discipline my resistance as well. And they go hand in hand. Um, I have to remember in moments where Jesus doesn't appear to be saving us, that throughout the Old Testament, there's songs of lament, psalms of lament where they're asking, how long, O Lord? When will you save me? There's a tradition of lament. There's a tradition of imprecatory prayers. There's a tradition of... Jesus not showing up in a way that God not showing up in a way that we expect. And so we pray, and so we yearn, and so we desire for liberation to come. And the reason the Jewish people could do it in the Old Testament is because they remembered. What did they remember? They remembered the Exodus. That's what they celebrate during Passover, Mm. the heartbeat of their life. They remember the liberation. They retell the story. Mm -hmm. And for us as Christians, we remember... The Annunciation, we remember the Magnificat, we remember the birth of Jesus, we remember the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit and the egalitarian community that came to symbolize God, or not even symbolize God, but be God, the expression of the body of Christ in the Church of Jerusalem. We remember abolition, we remember civil rights. Right. And so we hold on to that hope now in, in the face of evil that good has happened and good will come and God is faithful. That takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of discipline. How do we discipline ourselves to do it? We continue to worship. 
we continue to observe, we continue to receive communion and have hope, mm. right? In that moment, in the beginning of the book where I said, I ha Jesus has to save me from this. This cup and this body is useless if it doesn't save me. I'm not drinking it if it doesn't do it. Mm. I need that faith. And I'm going to wrestle with God about this. Where have you been? What are you going to do? Mm. Why do we still have these deadly weapons in people's hands? Why are cops still killing people? What's going to happen? Show up. Make something happen. And so we have to have that prayer and that hope. And we discipline ourselves and we hold on to that hope through worship, through prayer, through um, continuing to remember how God has liberated us mm -hmm. in history and also personally. Right on. Okay, cool. Uh, so, you're telling people not to clap. That you're like, we're at what six twenty. One thing we do at Circle of Hope is talk back, and that's I guess that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take yeah. questions. Do we have a mic that can go I around? Think we do. Oh, this is the mic. Okay. No, Bethany, don't pass it. I might get somebody else to do it. You know, nice Lauren, and she said, can I be helpful to you? So wonderful, Very Lauren. Lovely. Very sweet. Talk back in our Sunday meetings is exactly what it sounds like. If you have a question or a comment or a criticism, uh, it, that, this is the time for that, Charles. Let's hear it. Keep it short, Charles. You talk a little bit about the book about how to kind of stay, I guess, politically um, active. And one of the things you say is to kind of stay focused. And I wonder how you stay focused because it looks like right now with all of the evil that's happening in the world, there's just so many things to kind of get really frustrated about. You know, whether there's you no know, mass shootings, you know, the racism, the homophobia, you know, it's Pride Month. But it, and you was like... a over like 300 plus anti-trans laws being passed like how do you sort of stay focused on certain things yet informed about all the evil that is happening because it can seem very overwhelming at times to do so charles is asking i mean in light of everything how do you avoid being overwhelmed and i can definitely relate to that i, I feel frequently overwhelmed right. well I mean personally and what the, the activism that I do is very specific so I serve on the steering committee for the Philadelphia coalition of affordable communities and most of my effort just goes into affordable housing that's like I know people in it I'm I just testified last week for the community um, land trusts CLTs and so that's what I'm focusing on that's what I'm interested in that's where I put my activism right Remember during the primary, there was the question about the ZBA that no one knew how to answer? I remember fielding questions about the zoning board um, about how you should answer. I hope you opposed it. Um, but it was hard because the question was confusing and kind of led you to say yes. It doesn't really matter. It's over now. But like that's my area of interest particularly. Mm -hmm. So I have that area. Um, but I personally, I'm interested in the news, so I read the newspaper and pay attention to politics. I don't think that... For, G for you to believe Jesus takes a side, you need to like 
read the op-ed sections of the papers of record every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's that important. That's just a hobby horse of mine. So you might want to make friends with someone like me if you want to learn about those things, <laughs> but make friends with people that have um, interests or even expertise, which I don't in any policy, but make friends with them and learn from them. Um, you don't have to know everything on your own, and you don't even have to research everything on your own. Mm -hmm. What the epidemiologists say about COVID-19 is worth listening to. You don't have to do your own research. They're pretty good. What your doctor tells you to do, you should just listen to them, right? <laughs> like, you don't have to figure everything else on your own. And similarly, when it comes to policy issues, listen to experts on it, um, as opposed to researching it yourself, because number one, the disinformation is so wild, it's hard to even find good information. But two, it is absolutely overwhelming to try to become um, an expert on everything just to be an informed voter, right? There's all sorts of ways that you can do that and relationships that you can have and people that can help you. So develop trust relationships with people that you can rely on so that you can learn more without feeling overwhelmed. And like you have to know everything. You don't have to, it's too, it's too overwhelming. There's too much material. You know, there isn't even 24 hours worth of news, yet we get it all the time. There's an industry that tells us that too. So just be careful that you're being, what, what you're being fed about how to pay attention, you know? There's too much stuff. You didn't even need to know Joe Biden fell off a bike today. It doesn't matter, nobody cares. <laughs> and he was fine, he's okay. I checked in on him. Wow. Um, hey, all right, so I have the next up, question. Ryan? Hey, John. Uh, so first of all, I feel like this is a really timely book, and I hope it spurs a lot of like useful conversations, which I think has a good potential to do. And uh, I was listening to your um, your opinions earlier about just generally how like the, Repub the Republican Party are clearly kind of like villainous, but like the Democratic Party is very incompetent in a lot of ways, and um, you know doesn't do a lot to earn our our respect and trust. And I was wondering, like, so as individuals and more importantly as a community, how do we take a side outside of these uh, partisan kind of like divides which kind of dominate American politics, like really, like they're the whole show, I guess. I write about the gospel being incidentally partisan. In other words, what informs our politics is opposition to death, opposition to oppression, opposition to forms of death. And so, that informs our politics. And then we have practical options to select when it comes to that. Sometimes it'll look like you're always voting for a Democrat. Um, there, there will be other options sometimes as well, but... In terms what, of voting? What do you mean? Uh, in terms of voting, sure. Okay. But what informs our politics is siding with the oppressed and liberating the oppressed. The, um, the, 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 the paltry options that we get in our political economy sometimes make the choice easy, but I really hope that we're not constrained by our political choices in terms of our imagination. So, just because I voted for Joe Biden, for example, um, just because I'll vote for Fetterman, for example, or uh, uh, Shapiro, <laughs> um, just because I'll vote for those people doesn't mean that they hold the monopoly on the, on the constraints of my political imagination. I just do that because voting takes is, about worth, is worth the amount of time it takes to do. It doesn't take that long. It's easy to make a quick choice about that. But then, like, how do we imagine bigger things? What does it look like for Jesus to take, a, take the side of the oppressed when we look at the fact that Democrats and Republicans are both, like, warmongering people? 
they're both pro-police. They have all these other issues. Like, how then do we imagine a different way to keep our community safe, a different way to keep our world peaceful, a different way to consume um, energy that doesn't destroy our planet, right? Like, the political constraints that we have are not satisfactory, and so we need a prophetic imagination to, um, and a counter-consciousness, as Walter Brueggemann says, to imagine new ways of doing things despite the constraints that we have to make practical choices in our political economy. Um, use your faith then and use your opposition to oppression and opposition to death to imagine ways that we can act and be that are not limited to our political economy. So even, I mean, the Democrats are uninspiring. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to continue to um, even support them personally because of their uh, lack of uh, courage. And, and, and now this is getting too long, but in their defense, they're a coalition party. You, know? you have a Nazi party. And I won't say Nazi because that's not that specific. I'll say fascist. You have a fascist party, and then you have everybody else in another one. And so we're a little diluted on this side. There's a lot of us because the only thing that makes you this way is not being a fascist. Like, so it's all the not fascist types and then the fascists and they're half of the country. So there's a lot of them and then the rest of us are all splintered here and we can't seem to get along and come up with decent policy because we're very splintered and fragmented. So we have this coalition that acts a little bit inept um, because it's just too, there's too many. You know, and so there's, there's a lot of interesting ways to imagine how we can reconfigure our uh, democracy to combat that, but that's neither here nor there. The bigger point is that despite the political constraints, you can imagine new possibilities for how to keep our communities safe, keep our kids educated, keep our planet um, from, what's up? Okay, okay, okay. Did you get the point? Can I keep going? There's new, you, you can have a prophetic imagination that exists beyond our political constraints. Hello. Uh, hey, what's up? Continuing on, we're already aware about how we end up with uh, Republicans basically representing the past of America and maintaining that. Democrats are supposed to represent the changing of status quo, but really end up being centrist, which is very much let's split the difference okay. between going forward and going backwards, which is just staying the same. Uh, I would actually like to ask you if you think it's important that uh, religion and a connection to God is used as a center point for one's own, uh, what is it called, for one's own moral compass, or if you think it's important for us to find a moral compass outside of our religious beliefs to cling to? It depends on who you are, you know. For me, the center of my conviction comes from Jesus and comes from the cross, but I don't think you need to... That, that needs to be where you begin. And if, if, if you begin just in opposition to fascism, if you begin just in opposition to environmental degradation, there could be a way for you to follow Jesus there, or there could not be, and we could ally anyway. I don't think you need to find what your center is. Be convicted, you know, and God is alive. God is alive in you, and if you're becoming more fully yourself and more fully human, then I think you're gonna relate to God one way or the other, and God is bigger than um, just like our political imaginations are not limited to the constraints of our political economy, God is bigger than the constraints of our, um, uh, our religious sociology, um, our, our, our religious containers, if you will. And we just have these containers so that we can possibly contain the magnitude of God in a way that's knowable and expressible and like you can actually worship. You can actually have expressions of faith because they are, uh, 
they have to be, this big idea about God and faith has to be put in containers that we can actually consume. So I don't think you need to center yourself and your moral compass on faith, but that is one for me. Um, and wherever you find your, the, the, your moral compass, if you find yourself opposed to oppression, there's a lot of ways for you to find God and an expression of God um, beyond what we think of as our religious uh, constraints. I just want to do a time check at 6.30. It, it is 6.30. Uh, so um, special thanks to Bryant, who's doing tech back there. Um, thank our audience, too. Thank, and thank you all for being here. Yeah, thank you all for being here. Um, Amy Young does our website. Woo! Tess Patino is our social media director. Jared Subley does our theme song. And this is so much fun to say this to all of you all's faces. We want to know how you're Jesus following and practicing, oh, Jesus following is practicing your faith. Uh, we want to know, I mess this up every time, and now yeah, we're Yeah, I usually cut out the outtakes. Damn, this isn't going to be cut uh, out. Seeing, anyway. This is how the sausage is made. Yes. So we want to know go. how you're doing your Jesus you're following. Right where it happens, yo. Yeah. Oh and the anti-racism work <laughs> that you're doing. So please drop us a line at colorcorrectionpodcast.com because we want to hear from you. And with, thank you. And with that... Stay black, Little Mermaid.